actually, um, I, I, I had an interesting experience. I got my second COVID shot. So you can, you know, if, um, if the side effects kick in while I'm speaking, um, that'll be exciting. Um, but, uh, it was, it was, uh, I'll tell you, it was a weird experience. Um, because on the one hand, it's like, it's like, I'm vac. I think I'm vac. I guess I'm not really vaccinated for like a couple of weeks yet. I don't. It's it's that weird sort of in between sort of space. But it felt like this big momentous moment. And yet at the same time, I don't know if other people have similar experiences. Um, when I went in for my first shot, man, I was over at the Landman Center at Yale. Like it was like packed, like standing room only. You know, like this huge, huge machine. Went in today. A few fewer people there. Um, it was a, it was a it was a more intimate crowd. Um, and and it struck me that this is this is not uncommon in the way that life goes. Um, so often, it's just sort of like the fireworks of rescue that get all the press, right? Like whether it's like that first shot in the arm, or like I don't know if you remember, like the the first shot, right? Like those pictures from the UK of like people getting COVID vaccines, or I think it was a, a nurse in Queens who got the first one in the United States. Um, but that's, that's how it often goes. The fireworks of rescue get all the press, whether in history with the think of like the D-Day invasion or the fall of the Berlin Wall or in our present moment, right? That first vaccine shot, that moment when an American court finally found a white police officer guilty of murdering an unarmed black man. These are the moments that grab the headlines. But it's what happens next that makes all the difference, right? D-Day, if the Nazis don't surrender, D-Day means nothing. If Germany doesn't develop a thriving democracy, sometimes I'm actually sort of jealous of German democracy. Um, if, if, if that doesn't happen, then the fall of the Berlin Wall means nothing. It's what comes next that makes all the difference. And what comes next is always less flashy. It's less likely to be memorialized in a Tom Hanks film. The same is true of our lives with God. It's perhaps easy to recognize God's grace in dramatic moments of divine rescue, but it's what comes next that makes all the difference. And there is grace in those moments as well. And so in this series, we're talking about grace on the other side of dramatic rescue. Grace on the other side, God willing, of this pandemic. What does God's grace look like after the dramatic rescue. What should we be on the lookout for as we exit this season of drama and trauma, of flooded emergency rooms and flooded streets, of shots going into arms, saving life, and shots fired, taking life, the season of prudent and temporary social distancing, and a season of continued wicked and generational social alienation? When, God willing, this season of drama and trauma ends, what then? What does God's grace look like on the other side? And as we're asking that question, we're looking to learn from the story of the people of Israel after they were delivered from slavery in the land of Egypt. Right? After their drama and trauma, after the diseases and plagues and injustices and the dramatic rescue of a sea parted in two, what did grace look like for them on the other side of God's dramatic rescue? And we're asking this question so that we can be ready to recognize and receive God's grace when and as it comes to us in the ways that it does in seasons like the one that, God willing, we are about to enter or are already 
entering. And today we come to that moment when God's grace on the other side takes a rather surprising and admittedly rather dramatic form. This is one of those moments where it may be hard not to picture Moses as Charlton Heston. I'm talking, of course, about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, it turns out, are themselves expressions of God's grace to us. God's grace on the other side. They're not just dry lists of do's and don'ts. If we listen for the grace, if we receive them as gifts, grace and gift have a a lot to do with each other, then the commandments are actually extraordinary gifts, extraordinary sources of grace. They offer an entirely new way of life. They invite us to live at home with one another and with God. Now, the Ten Commandments don't, don't, you know, lay out that whole way of life um, in every detail. Enjoy the beauty of being outside when it's warm. Um, they, you know, the Ten Commandments aren't going to describe every little detail of that. They just lay it out in sort of broad strokes. But they do capture the, in, the impetus of the whole thing. And, this, and the first commandment, which is the only one I'm going to talk about today, this first commandment similarly, I think, captures actually the sort of impetus of all ten. And by extension, holds in, in it the sort of seed of an entirely new way of life. All baked into one commandment. Do you remember it? Let me read it to you. The first commandment as handed down to us by the rabbis as recorded in Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's it. According to the ancient rabbis, that's the end of the first of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, the clever clever among you um, may protest. Um, Surely this cannot be the end of the first commandment. Maybe your Bible even has a semicolon um, rather than a period at the end of the sentence that I just read. For what it's worth, Hebrew Bible doesn't have uh, any punctuation. Well, uh, it originally didn't have any punctuation. Um, Nor does it number the commandments. but you may, you may further protest. Um, how can this really be a commandment? It doesn't tell us to do anything. To which I might respond, well, first of, our, first of all, are commandments fundamentally about telling you what to do? And more importantly, are you sure that this verse doesn't tell us to do anything? On the contrary, as I said, I, I take it this verse contains an entire way of life an entire vision of life and a new sort of home. So I, I want to I start right at the beginning, right, right with these, these first few words. I am the Lord your God. There's a, there's a whole personal relationship packed into these few words, right? The text isn't just providing information. It doesn't say Yahweh is the Lord or Yahweh is God in the third person. It doesn't just say, I am the Lord in the abstract, like God's generic self-revelation to the world. Nor does it say, Yahweh is the Lord your God, providing information relevant to your life, but just information nonetheless. It's, it, it, it begins a conversation. It says, I am the Lord your God. This is God's revelation of God's self to you. And from the very first, God says, look, 
This is about, this is about you and me. This, and, and the you here, from maybe the only times um, when you like, go check these things in the Bible, the you here is singular. It's crazy. This is a personal relationship. I mean, it's much more than just a personal relationship, but it is a personal relationship. God begins by looking you in the eye and saying, Lucretia, I am your God. Begins looking you in, 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 the, in, the, in the eye and saying, Nathan, I am the Lord, your God. And for some of us here today, this is all we need to know. God isn't just the God of our ancestors. God is that too, but not only. God isn't just the God of our mothers and fathers, the God of our grandmothers and grandfathers. God is that too, no doubt, but not only. The God of our grandmothers and grandfathers of Sarah and Abraham, of Mary and Joseph, that very same God says to each and every one of us, I am the Lord your God. God comes to us as we begin to imagine life again on the other side of this pandemic and grabs us by the shoulders, looks us in the eyes, and says, this is about you and me. This is about you and me, kid. I've got this. I've got you. And I, found my, I found myself thinking about this commandment last week during Daniqua's talk when she was helping us recognize what might actually be productive about grumbling. Right? And I take it that a, a big part of that is because grumbling acknowledges this relationship, this conversation. It keeps the conversation going. Maybe it even jumpstarts the relationship. The Exodus story gets going when God says that the cries of God's people have come to God and God has decided to act. Now over the long haul, I think it will need something more than just grumbling. <laughs> but if grumbling is where it starts so be it. I mean, I think we can take it to the bank. It is much better to say the wrong thing to God in prayer than to fill your mind with wise thoughts, even wise thoughts about God that set aside the personal relationship that God wants to have with us. Whatever you have to say, say it to God, even if it's complaint, even if it's sorrow, even if it's doubt, even if it is suspicion or even anger, keep the conversation going. Keep the relationship alive. Because if you think about it, I mean, we're never going to like get it right anyway. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I haven't gotten any of my human relationships right. My hunches, like the relationship I have with God, I'm not, I'm not going to get that 100% right ever. So we might as well just be the mess that we're going to be before God in conversation with the one who begins by insisting, I am the Lord, your God. Are you starting to get a sense of how this statement actually tells a story that becomes a whole picture of a new way of life? But it goes on, right? It says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That this, this one, this God who invites us into personal relationship isn't some, you know, vague cosmic presence. This God acts. This God has done work on our behalf. This God has rescued us. Now, we might imagine that for the Israelites hearing this, um, this, this command in, in Exodus, this would be obvious enough, right? 
Um, if we think about all of the drama and the trauma, the frogs, the flies, the blood, the death, I, I, I almost, I don't have to list any of the same things I listed before. There's so much drama and so much trauma. We can just list new things. The parting of the sea, all right, we mentioned that before. Those big blockbuster moments, you would think they would know that it was God who had led them out of Egypt. But Exodus makes it clear. It didn't go without saying that the one who rescued the people was in fact God. There were, after all, other explanations that seemed plausible enough. Maybe, maybe it was Moses's sort of political savvy or Aaron's um, excellent rhetorical skills or maybe Moses's sort of connections within Pharaoh's house. Maybe it was good fortune or, as we heard last week, maybe against all appearances, it was actually bad fortune. Um, uh, indeed, it eventually struck a number of them as quite plausible that, in fact, a golden calf deity had actually rescued them. When they eventually make this idol, um, Aaron presents it to the people and says, this, 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 this is the God who led you out of Egypt. Now that might strike us as crazy. How could they go through all of that and not even know who set them free? But let me ask you, who rescued you from this pandemic? Who rescued you from this pandemic? As we get to the other side of this Red Sea, who rescued you? Because if we're going to come to the other side of this pandemic, and God willing, we will, and we are even now, if we're going to come to the other side, it matters a great deal what sort of story we're going to tell about who rescued us from the COVID-19 pandemic. So who was it? Was it the brilliant scientific and medical minds who cared for our bodies and developed the vaccines? Was it the essential workers who fed our bodies at the risk of their own? Was it our own savvy and vigilance to remain free of infection if we were able to do so? Now, don't get me wrong, I am grateful for all those who have cared for us and made a way for us out the other side of this pandemic, and I am in favor of all of the savvy and vigilance that we have and can still muster. But are these the ones, ultimately, who rescued us? Or are they Moses and Aaron by whose hands God's rescue came? Were our ways of caring for one another in the midst of, our, of hardship our moral triumphs, or were they reflections, at times poor reflections, of God's abiding care for us? Who rescued us? Who is rescuing us from the pandemic? We need to get our story straight. We need a clear story to tell about the pandemic that tells it as a story of God's deliverance. And I don't just mean a story to tell others. I mostly mean a story to tell ourselves. Because again, I I think you can take it to the bank. When it comes to shaping our lives on the other side, more important than the lives we have lived are the stories that we tell ourselves. 
because the drama, the trauma in your life, the events themselves are done and gone the moment they happen. They may take up residence in your body and linger with you for generations to come, but the story you tell yourself and retell yourself again and again, that is what is going to stick with you. It becomes the story that you live in. It shapes your imagination. It shapes your hopes. It makes you who you will become. So let's be careful with the stories that we tell ourselves about these past 15 months. There are some golden calves in our own minds who desperately want to take credit for what has happened. What has it been for you? How has God shown up for you? Let's tell those stories. What would it mean for you to recognize that vaccine in your arm as in a very real sense, God's rescue? What would it mean for you to receive this next season as God's deliverance? And I, look, I don't mean to overlook the, the genuine losses that many of us have experienced. Deaths of loved ones, losses of livelihoods, dreams deferred, months and seasons of profound loneliness and isolation, and maybe even disappointment in God's people. If God is going to get the credit for leading us into this new season of life, then God will have to agree to meet us in our questions, our complaints, our very real cries of anguish about this season of death, even and especially if some of those questions are quite raw. But friends, I will tell you, I have found God quite willing to meet me exactly in that place, in the place of those hard questions. If I thank God for the good in my life, I can also go to God with my sorrow and with my anger. This is what it means to live by the command, I am the Lord, your God. So friends, let us resolve with whatever important caveats of gratitude and lament, gratitude for the hands by whom God's rescue has come to us, God's grace has come to us, um, and, and caveats of, of, of lament about places where we just, we don't, we see things that would be hard for us to describe as God's rescue of any sort. But with those important caveats, let's resolve that we will tell ourselves and tell one another the story that God has delivered us from this pandemic, that God is the one who delivered us from the land of Egypt. Finally, as I said at the beginning, the text goes on to say, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If God has taken us from the house of slavery, then God has brought us instead to a different sort of home. God's rescue isn't just a no to whatever's wrong in the world. That would let whatever's wrong in the world be the first principle and then God would be the second. (laughs) That's not how the world and God work. Grace on the other side means not having the other side be a mere mirror reflection of the trauma that we've just experienced. If we live that way, our lives are still controlled by the trauma. As God leads God's people out of the house of slavery, God does not lead them into a mirror image of their servitude. For example, a world where they oppress as they have been oppressed. 
that would be a mere reversal of Egypt, still yielding to Pharaoh the right to define the terms, even in the negative. Nor is it a world where they live into wide, o- wide open self-determination. That would be to misunderstand freedom and think that what freedom means is alienation from the very relationship that we talked about at the start. I am the Lord, your God. Rather, the invitation is to a life of dynamic relationship with the living God. Life at home with God and all of God's people in the, in the, in the healing balm of real home after a long season in the unhomed land of Egypt. The house of slavery was never truly home. Though the Israelites can be sort of perversely nostalgic for it, and perhaps there are times in our lives when we are perversely nostalgic for homes that were never home. In important ways, the pandemic, no doubt, has unhomed our homes. Our homes have gotten smaller and emptier. Once places busy with the activity of friends and family, they've become refuges from a world that we've learned to treat as dangerous, as a source of infection. For those with means, perhaps our homes have become fortresses of safety, retreats from the world, would-be personal paradises. I have to confess that in this season, I have, it's a true confession, I have watched way too much HDTV um, over the last, I'm seeing some nodding over the last 15 months. It began as an excuse of like, well, I can't travel, I can travel on the television. Um, I don't, I don't, I really can't commend that to you as like a good trade-off. But I'll tell you what it definitely was for me. It was a steady stream of unhomed home. Home as a private, familial paradise. So-called private paradises are unhomed homes. That might be the sort of like ideal of home that we're walking out of this pandemic with. They, these, these homes get right that home should be a place of safety, but they draw and maintain too firm a boundary. And the front door becomes a virtual drawbridge and the lawn a moat. Good at keeping others out, equally good at keeping us in. You probably can tell by now, there's a rather thin line between a private paradise and a personal prison. Suffice it to say, that's not home. No matter how desirable the TV realtor makes it look, no matter how many six and seven figure sums the wealthy spend for them, that, whether the reality of that or just it's taking up residence in our minds as an ideal, That is the house of slavery from which God wants to rescue us. And for some of us, for some of us, the pandemic has most of all revealed how unhomed our ideals of home may always have been. That's a new one. Home as a respite from a dangerous world. When we start to think about home as a, as a respite from a dangerous world full of, of those people, whoever those people may be. We didn't need COVID to have a distorted picture of home like that. But COVID may have helped us realize just how distorted our picture of home has always been. Grace on the other side looks like allowing God to re-home our homes that COVID and our broken imaginations have long torn apart. 
And it looks like God's invitation. Grace on the other side looks like God's invitation to live at home with God. And through being at home with God, being at home with the people of God and all people, with the entirety of God's good creation. It looks like only when, only when and as it is safe to do so. But it, it, it ultimately will look like open doors, open arms homes and lives open to receive what God has for us, new homes in place of the house of slavery, the houses of slavery from which we've been rescued. I am looking forward to being in one another's homes again, (laughs) having many of you in our home. So today there there are three rather straightforward I take it invitations. The first is 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 the most fundamental relationship with God. And I, I mean that sort of hands on the shoulders, eye to eye relationship that God wants to have with you. If you want to start that relationship today, uh, there are any number of people here. Anybody who's who's uh, marked as a prayer ministry or prayer minister, any of the, the 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 pastoral staff around here, we would love to pray for you. The second invitation would be this. What specific story do you need to tell about how God has rescued you from the pandemic? Some of you are still wrestling with that. And you're sort of like, I mean, I guess like, like God like created the people who created the policies. Or, <laughs> I mean, I, that, that's fine. Like work it through. But I think it's going to be important to us to have worked out that, that story to tell ourselves story, I, I don't mean as any sort of falsehood, right? That true insight about what is really going on. Third, I just asked, how can you say yes today to that invitation to a new sort of home? How has COVID caused you to distort your actual, your, your home, your house, the, your apartment, your, the building where you live? How has it revealed ways that you've had a sort of a distorted picture or ideal of home for a long time? What would it look like to say yes to an invitation to a new sort of home with God and God's people and all people and the whole of God's good creation?